This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. Welcome to the June 1st edition of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. Uh, we're broadcasting on 88.7 CFUR here, and uh, we have um, two uh, contrasting interview subjects uh, for today's program. Uh, first, we're going to Albany, New York, and speaking with uh, James Serrano, a longtime uh, political analyst, uh, racial justice activist, food security activist, uh, who um, is uh, just one of many racialized Americans who are very frightened um, and also angry by the recent turn in uh, America's uh, policing crisis. So uh, we'll get James's observations uh, on uh, the larger crisis of which um, these uh, policing protests and police overreach are just one small part. Following that, we're going to be speaking with Victoria City Councilor uh, Ben Isset, one of the few uh, self-identified socialists um, in government in British Columbia, a um, a counselor whose um, environmental and social justice initiatives have um, earned the ire of the Premier's office and public condemnations by John Horgan. Uh, this hasn't dissuaded uh, Councillor Isset at all. And uh, recently he came together with three other Victoria City councillors uh, behind an interesting initiative uh, to try and preserve key um, programs that have been instituted uh, to deal with COVID-19 uh, to try and make those a permanent part of Canada's welfare state. So uh, we'll speak with him in the second half of the program. But uh, thank you for joining us on CFUR. I'm Stuart Parker, and next up is my talk with James Serrano. With me on the line from uh, Albany, New York, is uh, James Serrano, uh, a longtime observer of uh, U.S. politics and uh, activist therein, uh, works in the uh, food security and um, wealth equalization game in Albany, and um, after many years of discussing um, U.S. politics and how it intersects with race, I thought uh, we'd have James on to talk about um, the current upsetting and um, transfixing developments in the United States right now. Thanks for joining us on the program. Great to be here, Stuart. So um, now we're looking at an America with... Um, major protests, uh, clashes with the police uh, in uh, over 30 major cities. Uh, we have in multiple cities uh, police uh, 
firing on unarmed civilians on their porches. We have uh, police cars driving into crowds of nonviolent protesters. Um, we have um, uh, looters from various uh, communities, particularly suburban white communities coming into inner cities and appropriating uh, a lot of stuff. And we have a president um, that is suggesting that um, not enough people have been killed yet. When did this become inevitable? If we were to think back in like the past few decades of American history, what is the point where this kind of confrontation uh, became something we could no longer avoid? In my opinion, it became very difficult to avoid after Obama's second election. And what was it that in 2012 that gave you this sense that we were on a terrible path? Just everyone's reaction to having a black man as president or a multiracial man as president, having a non-white man as president. Yeah, the fact that they resurrected uh, the terms like mulatto, biracial, and whatever out of nowhere on the sort of liberal left indicated the degree to which there was discomfort, I would say. They shouldn't just have uh, a mass of angry Republicans who didn't vote for Obama. You also had that discomfort registering in all kinds of parts of white society that grudgingly did. And the other part of it is, is his identity was so split amongst everyone. I personally identify as multiracial. I saw him as the first multiracial president because he knew what it means to be multiracial and not fit in anywhere. Right. He was a great code switcher, a great person for ingratiating himself with many different audiences facing in many different directions. Now, um, in 2010, there had been a lot of pretty upsetting developments with the rise of the Tea Party, um, with uh, two of their senatorial candidates having brute squads that beat opponents in the street. Um, but uh, after 2012, if this was the shift, what could have happened before 2012 that could possibly have avoided America's backlash against um, uh, a new level of inclusivity? This, this may just be my own nativity, but I don't know what could have been done, but I just have this feeling that there was, there was space to maneuver. After the 2012 election, there was no more space to maneuver. And, um, and, and we came towards this point. Now, Donald Trump has promised his supporters a lot of things. He's a very confusing public figure to deal with. Um, he's clearly stoking this confrontation with his provocative statements on Twitter, um, his securitization of the operation, his complaints that not enough people are dead yet. Um, is this gonna be too much for his base or will his base go along with not just this increasing economic insecurity, but this increasing physical insecurity that comes with upping the ante here? His actual base? will go along with it perfectly because they just want someone to look down on, anyone to look down on. 
so um uh so your sense is that um that the Trump movement is already ready for this level of uh, violence and division. I what will not say this was his end game, but I believe it was his movement's end game. Now, this movement that has coalesced around him is, um, you know, it's, it's complex and strange. Um, to what degree do you think that um, these are people who are seeking violence? Like Hannah Arendt talks about how authority is about controlling people and violence is really about the breakdown of authority, the failure to control and instead this situation melting down into violence. Is this a movement that wants control of non-white America, or is this a movement seeking violence against non-white America? I'm going to, in a very unhelpful way, say yes to both of those, because I don't believe it's a movement that truly knows what it wants. It's a movement that's in the American lie, that you can be anything you want, except you can't. <laughs> it depends on your capabilities. And people, even with all the privilege that they have, if they are low capability, fall in, like, right. can't be extraordinary. <laughs> if so, um, so you're suggesting that a, a lot of the Trump movement are people who feel a sense of personal failure, whether at the familial level or the professional level, the sexual level. A sense of theft of personal success would be more accurate. They don't see it as a failure on their part. They see it as something that was taken away from them. So they feel that the, the sort of success is supposed to be rationed out to white people like them and the, something's gone wrong with the rationing protocol. And that's because everyone else is involved. Right. So if, um, if this is really the, uh, and I, I mean, I certainly see that, uh, you don't just see that in the Trump movement with the sort of minority of the white working class that has thrown in recently. You see this with um, um, heirs to small family fortunes, um, you know, men with degrees who thought they would, those degrees would take them somewhere. Uh, we see a lot of that. Um, and now Trump is accusing Antifa protesters of being responsible for all of this, that anti-fascist organizing is really the thing. And a couple of weeks ago, we had some guests on the show who were talking about what we call sort of fascist or authoritarian epistemology. And this question came up, do Trump's people really think that's true? Do they care if it's true? And if not, what's the purpose of blaming this small and nebulous group? So I don't believe that most of that base actually understands what Antifa is. I think it's just been painted as the boogeyman for them to rally against. Of, They don't understand that 
Antifa is a philosophy and not a group? So, um, but you think they do buy his idea that groups like Black Lives Matter and anti-fascist organizers are the culprit? Yes, because obviously someone is taking things away from them that he says they deserve. Now, this, this brings up some interesting observations that were made about the uh, looting in the first city in, um, in Minneapolis, where um, uh, white suburbanites were commuting to the downtown in order to loot. Um, now, when you're imagining those sort of white suburbanites coming in, getting their big screen TV with the crowbar, are these people Trump voters? Are they something else? Is there a third force? Are they opportunists? I honestly would say they were just opportunists. So, um, so in some ways, though, right? Those people, uh, those opportunists, are addressing the very thing of Trump saying they deserve something, and there they are going and getting it. Um, now. One of the other things that we're seeing here is um, police in all kinds of cities um, having their tactics, their culture, their costumes converge in all of this. Um, and I, I was thinking about like the situation in Greece where the fascist party, the Golden Dawn, put huge amounts of their efforts into controlling police union locals, recruiting police force members as party activists, things like this. Um, when we look at um, these increasingly bellicose, increasingly militant police forces, um, is this sort of a, a top-down strategy or a bottom-up phenomenon? I think it began bottom up, became, but became a top down strategy when people realized it was happening. If that makes so, sense. Yeah. No, I think it happened sense. organically and then people started taking advantage and cultivating it. And so, I mean, this does not augur well for um, the elections in the fall. Um, we are going to have tremendous death before those elections. Um, we have tremendous voter suppression going into those elections. Um, is that, does there remain a path for anything other than Donald Trump's second term? Right now, I'm not sure. Ask me again in a week or so. <laughs> Right. Let me see how this series of events plays out. If this just gets squashed, no, it's going to be four more years and the world's going to burn further. If now, people continue to be as fed up and as working towards similar goals as they are right now, I think there might be an option. Canadians. There you are across the border, and thousands and thousands of Americans have stood up against uh, police brutality and white supremacy. Aside from like copying memes around on social media, what are some useful things that people from outside the US can do to show solidarity? 
honestly, the most practical one is donate to bail funds and other causes. Um, I can make sure you have a set of links, which is currently being used if you don't already have it. Yes, we'll, um, we'll post those at the end of the program, let people know. So in your view of all of the sort of charitable interactions, the most important thing is posting bail for people. It's, activities like these don't come cheap or free. And a lot of the people who are involved in them are below the poverty line or on the poverty line. And um, almost all of them are uh, being placed in incarcerated in facilities that are not able to uh, do any of the distancing protocols for COVID. And a lot they, of these they people- They are overcrowded crowded before a pandemic, that is correct. And uh, many of the individuals in question don't have the medical insurance either, and that's one of the reasons they're there. Um, in many ways then, uh, so, this is, um, so there are more fundamental survival questions, even than the sending of pizzas to protest lines, which are to get people out of cells and back in their homes. Yes. Um, now, uh, in, uh, now, Canadians, we're, we're a little bit baffled by the situation because uh, Indigenous and um, African Canadians um, are uh, faced just the same kinds of incarceration rates as visible minorities in the US, face um, the same kinds of discrimination in the workplace, uh, intergenerational trauma, all of those indicators. Um, why, do you, why do you think that things have boiled over in the US so differently than in other white supremacist states? I think in one way is our nation was built on the labor of particularly black and indigenous people of color. And as that labor has moved, that's resented. And technically, if you include the um, prison shop labor, we're still running on. Yes, it's still, it's still the 19th century. This is still a racialized enslaved labor force, but it's a good point that a society built on land theft and a society built on labor theft are not quite the same thing. And uh, in many ways, the, um, uh, this is something that uh, Canadians, um, we may not locate the difference there. But in our case, of course, we see uh, not the increasing um, pauperization of racialized Canadians, but um, uh, increasingly disinhabitation, withdrawal of services, uh, things like that. Now, of course, um, those who are trying to look on the brighter side of a very terrible thing um, keep showing the scene of the Flint police uh, joining the protesters. Um, what do you make of the use of that image? And does it tell us anything important regionally rather than uh, about why Flint might be different? I go back and forth on that one simply because there's a cynical part of me that feels like it is just a PR move to steal the press. But there's a part of me that hopes for the best. Well, and so, I, I... There's an interesting thing coming from upstate near from New York in general. New York is well known as a, quote, liberal state. 
Oh, yes. It's not. Well, that's why the governor governs with the Republican Party and not with the Democratic Party in the legislature. What it is, is it's a labor-friendly state. Right. Which is why we appear progressive, because labor movements actually have some sway here. Right. So in some ways, what we're looking at with these police forces is a difference between a unionized force and a non-unionized force. I would yes. think also there's a term that um, activists on hydroelectric mega projects in Canada use um, for white people who were displaced by a hydroelectric dam. They're referred to as honorary Indians. And I can't help but think of um, the white police officers in Flint who don't have potable drinking water in their homes as uh, honorary African-Americans. To some extent, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, uh, I'm going to have to let you go. We have a, a, a slightly more uplifting story following you with uh, Ben Issa, the uh, Victoria City Councilor, who's uh, working on uh, guaranteed minimum income and food security in the light of COVID. But I want to thank you very much for joining the program. And yes. I fear we may have to check back in with you in a week or two. Yes, I <laughs> will hopefully be around. <laughs> Excellent. Well, stay safe in Albany. Thank you, James. Right. Have a good one. Talk to you soon. All right. You are listening to CFUR 88.7 FM broadcasting here in Prince George. My name is Stuart Parker. This program is entitled Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, and we've just heard from James Serrano of Albany, New York. Uh, next up, I'm going to be speaking with Victoria City Councilor Ben Isset. Uh, if you've missed the first part of this show, it's rebroadcast on Thursday mornings. It's available on our website, cfur.ca, and it's available through my uh, website, stuartparker.ca, and as a podcast via Anchor FM. Joining me on the line from uh, Victoria is uh, Ben Isett, uh, a uh, popular city councillor there, uh, often not so depicted by the legislative press gallery, who may not have voted for him uh, when they were casting their ballots, but uh, more Victorians voted for him last election than anyone else. And uh, he's one of uh, four councillors in Victoria who's um, signed on to a project uh, called the Common Vision, Common Action. Um, can you take us in and let us know whose project is this? How did this get going? Sure, and good morning, Stuart. So. Um, yeah, a few years ago, uh, grassroots organizations um, were looking at the, I guess, the local um, political scene and uh, the state of uh, local government and uh, the the balance of forces um, relating to uh, issues around social and ecological justice. And uh, so a committee came together um, to organize a conference called Common Vision, Common Action, a regional agenda for social and ecological justice. So that conference happened in October 
of 2017, so about a year before the last municipal election. Um, and that conference, there was a three-day conference, a couple hundred participants, and uh, put together a policy document um, that sort of covered different areas um, of policy and governance in the region, from housing rights to transportation to environmental protection, food security, uh, arts and culture, and some other policy areas. And so that was kind of the, the initial uh, phase of the common vision, common action, kind of grassroots policy development process. And then more recently, uh, since the uh, onset of the pandemic and the associated uh, economic crisis, um, there was uh, a suggestion to sort of uh, reactivate that process in the context of COVID-19 to uh, just have a discussion about what kind of a, a community in a region do we want to live in. And so out of that, there was a, an online uh, collaborative grassroots policy development process that convened uh, two, two town hall meetings, virtual town halls, that had about 100 participants in each. Uh, and out of that, um, put together a document called Moving Forward, Not Backward, um, uh, pathway or don't have the document in front of me this moment, but essentially uh, moving forward, not backward, um, a regional agenda for uh, caring low carbon communities after COVID-19. And so uh, with three of my colleagues on Victoria City Council, councillors uh, Jeremy Loveday, Shamarke DeBow and Sarah Potts, we brought that proposal to our council that uh, Victoria Council endorse uh, this policy agenda uh, for retaining low carbon and caring communities. Um, and our council voted uh, seven to one to endorse that agenda. So um, now this, uh, so this was pitched at the municipal level, um, municipal representatives voted for it. Many of the policies in this document though are policies that are federal level policies, provincial level policies, or policies that at the very near, at the very least, would require a level of collaboration among the different levels of government. So, um, uh, so I guess one of the first questions before we get into the specific policies is, where does this now go from here? Because surely um, this is something that members of the legislature, members of parliament would need to sign on to if these policies were to be enacted by the current governments at least. Yeah, so it, uh, it's on some levels it's an aspirational document that implementation of each component kind of requires follow-up and so just looking at some sections um, uh, if we look at the the objective under transportation of retaining the current fare free public transit program on a one-year trial basis uh, and also deploying the existing transit fleet with maximum service hours to substantially improve service so uh, just today, unfortunately, BC Transit reintroduced fares. So they uh, uh, expect it's similar in the Prince George area, but down here on the South Island, and I think wherever uh, is served by BC Transit, they've, uh, uh, there was a management decision to, to terminate the pilot program, which was in place uh, during COVID of uh, rear door loading and waiving fares. So we did have fare-free transit in the province for a few months, um, and unfortunately today that's been suspended. So that first one is now sort of a, 
it's an advocacy piece from local governments and grassroots organizations to each local transit system to try to restore fare free transit. Now, uh, this is obviously complicated by the fact that um, uh, in February, uh, the um, NDP Green Legislative Majority cut BC Transit's funding. So, in some ways, I mean, when we say it's BC Transit's decision, BC Transit has a certain bag of cash that's been handed to it by the provincial government, uh, by uh, um, Carol James, the finance minister, and Claire Trevena, the transport minister. Um, so one of the, I guess, the challenges here is uh, there are so many faceless entities that, um, that are doing this work. Um, where, just again, staying specifically on the transit question, because obviously as a transit rider in Prince George, I'm concerned. Um, and, you know, for, um, uh, and certainly this, um, this free transit has um, made things less terrible for uh, many of the, uh, the poorest people in Prince George who had really struggled to move around their community and been very much trapped in the downtown core where services they, uh, they needed were located and they didn't have their range through the community. We've actually seen stuff happening here. And so now that's gonna start shutting down. Where, um, where would you recommend people who support that agenda direct their attention or efforts? Yeah, well, it's a three-way um, funding formula. Um, there's the, um, a subsidy from the provincial government uh, a municipal contribution through the prop that's levied with the property tax, uh, and then fares. And so to replace fares means um, increasing one or both of those other streams. So either the municipal uh, tax contribution or the provincial contribution coming through the income tax and other provincial revenue streams. Um, and then, so I think that would be I think I personally think that is the approach we should take. Um, each local authority determines how much of the municipal revenue it wants to allocate. So that is the local decision. Uh, here on Southern Vancouver Island, it's made by a commission called the Victoria Regional Transit Commission. Um, I believe in Prince George, it would be a decision of Prince George uh, Mayor and Council. Yes, I have uh, large municipal boundaries. None of uh, we have we provide no service into the regional district lands that surround us. So it's just mayor and council. It's a single level. Yeah. So it would be it would mean people could pay more on their property tax, either a resident or a business or an institutional uh, taxpayer could pay more on their property tax uh, to to replace some or all of the revenues being collected through fares. Uh, my understanding too is if the municipal portion goes up, it's very rare that the province doesn't match that with their matching contribution. I talked to a planner a few years ago and their recollection is there was only one time, maybe a decade or so ago in the Okanagan when the Christie Clark Liberal government declined uh, a municipal request for the level of uh, transit funding. So generally when municipalities have stepped up with the municipal portion of transit funding, uh, the province has has followed in kind. So I think it certainly would put pressure on the province to have municipalities step up their contribution. So that seems to be the most straightforward issue of dealing with the fares. There, of course, is also the issue of service levels. And my uh, 
approach, uh, I think, has been to suggest that we do both. We eliminate the user fee barriers to transit ridership, so get rid of the fare boxes uh, in order to address both the social justice challenges and also the climate crisis. Uh, and then we also um, substantially improve service levels to make transit the preferred mode of service. Now, um, while there are some little differences regionally, obviously this transit file is of meaning to people in pretty much any community of over about 5,000 people in BC. But your initiative has very much, um, it's bounded by the South Island and um, the particular regional needs in Victoria. What are some of the things that are in the manifesto that um, wouldn't port so easily to Northern BC? What are some of the other things that um, uh, Common Vision, Common Action is asking for? So I'm just looking through the document. Um, it's fairly relevant from the transit uh, issues, it, still focusing on transportation and low carbon communities. It looks at improvements for sidewalks and crosswalks and cycling infrastructure. It uh, looks at um, uh, fuel switching uh, of residential, commercial, and institutional properties from fossil fuel heating systems uh, to uh, heating systems fueled by renewable energy sources. Um, it looks at rebates uh, for that fuel switching. So if a household wants to switch from an oil uh, or a gas furnace uh, to a heat pump or another uh, heating system, uh, now, I guess those heating systems become more, uh, the heating requirements certainly change uh, in the north and in the interior when you get to colder winter temperatures, uh, but there are um, non-carbon options there. Um, also looking at energy retrofits, which are certainly relevant in terms of not only reducing the um, energy requirements and the emissions of buildings, uh, but also the uh, the operating costs of buildings. So how much it costs a household annually to heat their home can have real benefits for the economic uh, well-being of households. Um, we from the, the, these issues around uh, emissions and sort of low carbon transportation and buildings, the document kind of shifts to looking at housing and other social uh, services and social rights. And so uh, we look at converting a portion of the transient accommodations, so the uh, hotels and motels, uh, into housing for um, people who need it. So whether that's uh, people who are homeless or other low-income people who are unstably housed. So that certainly is relevant. Um, I'm guessing there may be some additional unused capacity in Prince George, for example, either in motels or hotels that are not economically viable, and that those may be able to meet the needs uh, of housing low-income people with um, renovating the properties and uh, ensuring there's some adequate social supports uh, that are appropriate to individual needs. So that would be an example. So generally, just skimming through the document, it gets into childcare, uh, harm reduction services, uh, food security, um, uh, arts and culture. Um, and um, so now, what are, what are the biggest things people have talked about through... Um, uh, how we might change in response to uh, to COVID um, has been um, the reemergence of this guaranteed income question. Um, the government has agreed to study it, and I, I think we all know what what the provincial government agreeing to study something means at this point. Um, 
I, it's not a, a great force for optimism, but merely the Green Party agreeing to study it caused uh, Andrew Weaver to lash out at his former caucus mates and suggest that everybody getting a certain floor income was insane and should not even be discussed. Um, does, uh, you, does this uh, coalition um, in the South Island, did they take a position around those, um, not merely what people might get with a basic income, but uh, continuing benefits like CERB uh, into the future? So it's been more, um, more general wording, less tied to any specific programs, but so the wording we have around income support uh, and this was drafted uh, prior to the, the provincial commitment to increase um, the monthly payments for the lowest um, right. uh, paid uh, social programs. So in terms of disability insurance and uh, social assistance. So um, the wording we have uh, in the document is increase income support programs for unemployed people, low income people, people with disabilities, senior citizens, and people with precarious immigration status through joint action by all levels of government to a level that allows a person to live with security and dignity. So that's the, that's the policy commitment in, in the solution statement. Uh, there's a sort of a related uh, demand uh, right after that, increased protections and security for working people, including provision of a living wage and appropriate social security programs uh, with a focus on precariously employed workers, migrant workers, farm workers, and workers who lack the protection and benefits provided uh, by a collective bargaining relationship with employers. Right, so, um, this is a, so this is a pretty comprehensive policy framework. It hasn't necessarily, I mean, I'm personally not a huge fan of the guaranteed income movement. I don't think it's a particularly well thought through thing. You're talking about something different here. You're talking about raising the floor without um, moving in this sort of one size fits all direction that um, can sometimes actually undermine wages in the medium term. Um, now with um, uh so this coalition has come together, your council has come together. How contagious is this? Because many of these ideas strike me as things that um, would enjoy high levels of support in this community. Um, is there, um, are there moves elsewhere in BC to uh, put the same kinds of ideas on the table? Yeah, so there has been interest um, from uh, the lower mainland, elsewhere on the island, uh, from up in the north. Um, it, it was intentionally created as a, as a fairly focused regional program. Um, so the equivalent would be a, a program for the greater Prince George area and the surrounding rural uh, areas and electoral uh, areas. Um, and so it, it was in terms of the community that came together, the organizations and individuals that participated in the town halls and drafted and refined the statement, it, it was uh, looking at an agenda that would meet the needs of the area and also politically demands that would resonate uh, and fit the, the political culture and, and where the, the South Island is at. So um, I think initiating parallel processes in each kind of bioregion of the province would have a lot of value. Um, there is now 
uh, more of a, a national grassroots approach that's come together under the uh, Just Recovery banner. So uh, that uh, initiative, I believe, is being spearheaded by LEAD now uh, with support from a number of organizations. So I think with that sort of campaign now underway, uh, there's now, I guess, a, a framework for people wherever they are in the country to participate in these kinds of uh, discussions and then advocacy for policies along these lines. So uh, in some ways, our, our modest um, regional approach on the South Island has now been not superseded, but there's now a, a, a more robust national approach uh, to I, support people in any area. Now, I notice uh, you talk about, uh, I mean, you and uh, your fellow councillors have played a role in putting this forward. You talk about LEAD now as a national organization shepherding this national campaign. Uh, one of the things I've certainly noticed since um, about a month into the pandemic is that the normal shape of political discourse in um, uh, probably not just here, but in other sort of Western democracies has really shifted. That when uh, Andrew Wilkinson gets up there and tries to make a political intervention uh, critical of the BC government, um, it is very ill-received. When, um, and we don't just see that here in British Columbia, right? Opposition parties, pretty much everywhere except the United States um, are um, getting very little purchase and are rarely served by making any public statements at all. Uh, and in fact, the BC Liberals have increasingly silenced their leader's office and only made public statements where a local MLA says something nice about the government. We've certainly seen this dramatic turn with our MLA here, Shirley Vaughn, who has basically become a cheerleader for the uh, cabinet minister she was so vociferously criticizing. So one of the things I'm curious, and so it seems like to participate in political discourse now, you should either not be an elected official or you should be understood to be part of a pre-existing government. And the fact that there's that, there's that narrow sort of center-left majority on Victoria City Council that you were part of it strikes me this has thrust you into a different role, that because you're a legitimate politician who's part of the government, you're now having to carry a lot of the responsibilities, a lot of the expectations that we would normally have of our opposition politicians. Hmm. Is this consistent with your experience? Uh... Is that the shape of things? Yeah, well, definitely responsibility for the overall decisions of the uh, city are, are sort of born collectively, regardless of where someone might land on a particular issue. So the public doesn't discern too much about what the voting record is at council. And, um, and there's sort of a few distinct um, segments of public opinion. And Currently, we're getting more emails than we've ever had before. So the, the early part of the COVID phase, people were all seeming generous and they were maybe off their computers a bit and they were smelling the roses. And so the first month uh, was everyone sort of just a light touch, figuring out what it like, is like to live in an emergency. Because we hadn't gone through the wildfires down here that had shaken up and destabilized a number of communities in the interior. So it was the first emergency really 
for people who, except people living on the margins um, in uh, since the Second World War. Um, and so, but now there's a angst in many quarters, um, just taking the issue of homelessness. So some people feel the city and the province have, are being too heavy handed in response to homeless camps. Uh, and I happen to share that view. I think a public health approach rather than a public safety approach would have been a, a more appropriate way to have responded uh, to housing people who've been sheltering outdoors. Um, so we're getting a, a lot of uh, pressure from social justice organizations saying that not enough's being done to uphold and uh, protect the human rights and the civil liberties of people who are unhoused. We're also getting a very distinct body of emails and uh, criticism from people who think the city's being way too tolerant of uh, allowing people to shelter themselves outdoors, even though that's something that the city didn't decide. It was a court of appeal judge about a decade ago who said that if someone doesn't have a home and there's no adequate alternate shelter, they have a constitutional right under section seven of the charter, uh, the right to life, liberty, or to, uh, life, liberty and security of the person to shelter themselves. And so, so we're getting a ton of emails from people saying, how dare you let people sleep in our parks? And then the other one is, uh, how dare you interfere with the basic uh, human dignity of people who have to sleep in parks? So that's right. just one example. So while the media and um, perhaps higher level political decision makers are, imagine, are, are basing their decisions on where poll numbers and public satisfaction were a month ago, you're already seeing um, a, a real change, uh, trending back to normal, would you say? Yeah, and even a ramped up, because people have more time on their hands, because ele elements of the economy and society are still uh, either shut down or reined in. If you looked at a lot of, well, a lot of arts and culture, so movie theaters are closed, um, any liquor primary establishment to clo is closed, so bars or nightclubs. Some restaurants are now open, so that's something people can do with their time. But uh, just people generally, uh, people aren't traveling, they're even uh, out of town outings are reduced. So there's just, there's just less happening. Um, and so people have more time to sit on their computers and rail against the level of government that's closest to them, which is local government. And when you're a, pro, a counselor who tries to be proactive and reply to people who constituents who have an opinion, uh, there definitely is a high volume of messages these days. Well, this, um, uh, so we're, um, so there's this, um, this process that um, we don't really know how it will roll out um, uh, entirely, um, uh, where we're unclear as to the speed at which things will be relaxed or the things, uh, speed at which things will be uh, put back in place. Um, do you, uh, municipalities lost their emergency powers um, early in this process by the decision of our Solicitor General and Premier. We, um, um, and there, and there has been this great effort to um, focus um, the public sense of accountability around COVID on this one senior civil servant, Bonnie Henry. Um, 
In your experience as a municipal representative trying to work in cooperation with the province, um, is um, uh, is it main um, is it mainly the sort of uh, Bonnie Henry senior civil servants that are calling the shots, or is it elected elected representatives um, and how consultive are they being with um, people like you who are getting all the emails and getting all the public feedback? Um, there have been regular calls convened by uh, the Minister of Local Government with municipalities, particularly with mayors and regional district board chairs. So uh, I believe those calls have been happening weekly. I'm not sure if they still are, but for, so there was uh, basically, yeah, weekly, um, uh, two-way dialogue uh, between the, the mayors and the minister. And they, I think they were being done sub-regionally. Um, and then, so there was that formal um, dialogue. And then I think on specific files, there's been a lot of uh, discussion between municipal staff and provincial staff in emergency management BC, that being the agency. And that agency determines whether a municipal expenditure is eligible for provincial sort of emergency disaster assistance funding. Um, so definitely, and daily in the context of Victoria, daily uh, telephone calls relating to uh, housing people who are sleeping outdoors and social supports um, and definitely triggered by the homeless encampments and the public safety orders, but then uh, trends, transitioning to more practical questions of what accommodations are available and where could people sleep. So, um, yeah. And then, and then dialogue, I guess, on some of the, the higher level advocacy stuff uh, often coming from our mayor's office to various provincial officials. Right. So, um, uh, in the midst of all this, um, there is a, a perhaps parallel, um, uh, thing that uh, the provincial government did that's very relevant to us up here. Um, and that was the feasibility study of bringing back interurban passenger rail in, um, in your region. Um, so obviously this is something that Prince George used to have. We used to be the end of the line in the BC rail system. Uh, before that we were the middle of the line and the train went all the way to Dawson Creek and Tumbler Ridge and, uh, these other communities. Um, based on the timing of the release of their study, do you think there's a greater appetite uh, on the part of the province now to look at interurban transit? Yeah, the, uh, on the one hand, that study had a very high price tag for restoring and revitalizing rail on the island. Um, and it's the, the entity that owns the island corridor. So it's owned by a nonprofit, the Island Corridor Foundation. Uh, I served on the board of that organization for several years as, a, as the representative of the Capital Regional District. So I'm somewhat familiar with the operation. Um, and uh, it's a really valuable asset. It connects most of the urban areas on the island, at least on the uh, southeast corner of the island, which is where most people live between uh, Courtney and Victoria. It doesn't extend as far as Campbell River, but other than that, and Port Alberni and a couple communities in the northern end of the island, it really connects the, where the vast majority of people live. Um, but yeah, so the Island Corridor Foundation is questioning the price tag. So it, the report 
doesn't really land as like a template and a, a rallying call for restoring rail because of that kind of sticker shock. Uh, but to have that technical analysis of the state of the bridges, the ties, the ballast, the signals, uh, it's certainly um, relevant. The difference you have in Prince George is you at least, you do have a, a functioning, technically viable uh, freight uh, connection. So it's really just a policy choice in attaching operational resources to accommodate uh, passenger service. Um, well, and it's also a policy choice as to whether the provincial government attempts to get back an asset that was stolen from it that people exactly. did time for stealing. So the uh, 999 year lease. <laughs> and, well, of course. And, but, e but even most of the North American rail system uh, operates on rails that are not uh, socially owned. So even true. VIA, uh, VIA operates, I think VIA only owns the rail in the uh, somewhere in sections of the Windsor to Quebec City corridor, which is actually why it's such a slow service across the, the West, because it's, uh, you take a, the back seat to freight. So a lot of the time is spent on the sidings waiting for oil and coal trains to pass. And similar with Amtrak, uh, they, they only own some of the, the rail in the, um, uh, between Washington and Boston. And so, so yeah, so I think, so there definitely is a way to get intercity rail, uh, the VIA connection up to Prince Rupert is on, is on privately owned track, the VIA connection yep. from, to the Alberta So no, it, uh, VIA, VIA does uh, do, that, uh, do that thing, but uh, yeah. yes, you're talking about a whole other scale, something similar to what, what the lower mainland has, because it's got the Southern BC rail, which again is publicly owned. That's right, yeah. So um so yeah, much complexity. Anyway, we've got to wrap up uh, things here. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to explore a whole bunch of related issues around a just and sustainable transition. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Much appreciated. You'll be back. Thanks. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.